we've taken so many learning lessons from sport and from athletes and the, the things, the sacrifices that athletes make are similar to the sacrifices that business owners need to make. Um, and, you know, everyone gets angry at the, the business guys who succeed because they make all the money, but they also made all the decisions and all the sacrifices that the employees never wanted to make. You know? And that's the beauty of entrepreneurs. And that's exactly what happens in, in elite sport. This is the Talking Perspective podcast. We have the best athletes, the best minds in business, the best coaches, and uncover the secrets behind their success. Today's guest is Carl Goodman. He is the brains and the original owner behind one of Australia's premier private facilities, Athletes Authority. Honestly, Carl put so many gems in this episode. It's one of the ones you're going to want to sit back and listen to a few times to really get the best bang for your buck. I'm very lucky to be joined by Carl Goodman, one of the co-owners of Athletes Authority. Um, and in my humble opinion, would be probably the best gym in Australia, but also the best run gym in Australia. Um, and that is partly due to you and partly due to your business partner as well. Um, but we've got you on today. So can you, Carl, give us a bit of a rundown about who you are and obviously how you got into AA? George, thanks for having me on. Um, well, where to start? Um, I think similar to you, I started as a PT um, after a, a bit of a background in, in high-level sport. Um, PT was the, the natural kind of progression out of school, actually in finished school. And that made my choices somewhat limited with, with what I could do in a, in a, in a nine-week Cert 4. seemed pretty attractive given my background. So I did that for a couple of years, actually had reasonable success as a PT. Um, back then, this would have been 2007, 2008 kind of era, which was, if you're not familiar with it, is the Shannon Ponton era of, of PT. It's like Biggest Loser in its heyday. Um, and that was, that was kind of big. That was, you know, bodybuilding, T-Nation. They were, they were big um, kind of publications. So that's kind of where we sourced all our information from. Um, that's when I entered, entered the industry, loved it mainly because I was, you know, I was bodybuilding and had trained and was doing a whole bunch of stuff there and, and had some success early on by the time I was 19. So finished, I think I got kicked out of school at 16, started PT at 17 by 19. I bought my first house, which was quite good. And that was, you know, one of those turn up with the shoe box of the $50 notes you got when you got paid in cash. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure my mum guaranteed that loan because according to, I'm not sure how much I should be admitting to um, the ATO market. Um, <laughs> there are our friends, I, Carl. There are our friends. <laughs> yeah, ATO are our friends. Um, you know, turned up, didn't have a huge wage, official wage, but I did have a, a bit of cash in the bank. So, you know, obviously got this house and by the time I was 21, um, I'd, I felt like I'd been PTing for ages. In hindsight, it was four years. It was, you know, a drop in the ocean to, to some of the vets in the industry, but it felt like I'd been doing it for a long time. So I did a uni degree. I got in as a mature age student off the back of not having an HSC, obviously, and actually loved it. And I'm so happy I had that four-year gap um, between beginning work in the industry and then doing my degree because I really realized I wanted this and I wanted to be a coach and I wanted to be involved in sport. Um, and I did really well. 
um, I, was, I was really happy with the whole university experience and it created this incredible opportunity for me in that final year to, to spend some time with Lockie, who, as you mentioned, is, is my business partner. He was at the Giants at the time. I got suggested to be an intern, um, which is a whole other story we can talk about if you want. Um, and that's where I met him. Um, once I finished uni, I realized I had to get employed. I got employed by a, a private high school to, to run S&C there. And, and that was semi-successful. Um, I lasted probably about three months or so until I kind of got a bit itchy and, and wanted to change things. But obviously as an employee, I didn't have a lot of um, ability or leverage to, to influence systems. And I, that was probably at the point in time where I realized I probably wasn't a very employable person. Um, I didn't like uh, the, the structure of school. That's why I didn't do well. School, university was a bit more liberal in what I, in how, look, as long as I turned on and did the, did the exams and, you know, that was it, right? You know, you had a bit more flexibility, so that worked for me. Employment didn't work for me. Um, so I decided to sell my property, which had built up quite a bit of equity by that point. About 140 grand or thereabouts is what I need to start AA and, and, and started AA, which was initially a vision to work in youth athlete development um, because I was in a big private school belt of a lot of private schools in the north of Sydney and very quickly evolved into a catch-all um, gym with S&C principles really. So anyone could come and train. Um, it's called Athletes Authority, but if you're interested in good training, you know, you're welcome. Um, and that kind of got me to, you know, opening AA and, and we can kind of take it from there. What, um, what made you call it Athletes Authority? That's a good question. Um, I remember sitting down with my best mate at the time and, and his name was Sean. He helped me start AA and if he ends up listening to this, um, it's a huge credit. I don't think I would have been able to do it without him. He's not part of the business now. He decided to leave about a year in. Um, back to America and pursue his own things, his videographer now and whatnot. But, but he helped me kind of get it going. And I knew with, with the context of me being in private um, S&C within the private kind of high school space, I felt like there was a lot of potential because we were, we were doing some pretty, I, I want to be careful about what I say, but we we're doing some um, pretty old school training, you know, one of the philosophies was school kids shouldn't back squat, but front squats are fine. That, you know, it was, it was, we were, I was, I was held down by those types of ideas and that's fine. They had their reasons. I'm pretty sure Mike Boyle thought that. I think he probably still, he does. still does. He still does. Right. So I understand why they thought that way. Mike Boyle was a big influence on this school. That's nothing against them, but, you know, I felt like we still had a ways to go. So at the time, I was like, you know what, I want to be an S&C coach. I was also working with a, with a, a Shoot Shield rugby team, Shoot Shield being the kind of premier rugby competition in Sydney, if you're, if you're not in Super Rugby. I was their S&C coach. I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm starting to build some awareness around this space, and I reckon I can do better. And, and at the time, the my main competition was James Brody and, and guys listening to your channel probably are familiar with J train um, on the beaches. So, so J train looked after Manly Marlins in the same competition. I looked after Gordon rugby in the same competition. He had J train athletic performance and he was, you know, 
that my main competition. And I was like, I want to work with athletes as well. And I reckon I can do it as good as James Brody, if not better. And that's where Athletes Authority came from. I wanted to be the authority in the athlete training space. Um, and ironically, I was certainly no authority in 2016 um, and, and certainly didn't have all my ducks in a row. Um, but that was the idea is the vision that I wanted to be an authority at some point in time. And I kind of future paced and thought that maybe calling Athletes Authority would add some immediate credibility to the, to the brand. Yeah, I remember the, I think the first time I come across Athletes Authority, it was an old school yellow and white logo, something like that. Yellow and black. It was so bad. It was yellow and black. Um, it wasn't actually, it wasn't actually probably a bad logo, but the color scheme was, was not great. Um, yeah, yellow and black. And it was essentially two arrows, kind of like, um, I'm not sure if it's, Peugeot, it's not Peugeot, that's the line. It was one of the other. The create your own destiny one? Yeah, it's the two, two kind of, add two like arrows. That, that's it. That, that was it. Chevrons, the Chevrons. Spot on. Yeah, the Chevrons. So it was like two Chevrons and it was this idea of A and A stacked on top of each other with this idea of moving forward, pursuing, you know, moving towards a singular focus being the top of the triangle was and the top of an A, which was kind of the idea. Um, and that probably lasted, that lasted till Lockie bought in the business and we decided to rebrand as part of this, this reinvigoration of the brand. And yeah, that, that was, it was yellow and it was yellow and black initially. Yeah. So the, we might as well go there now. So obviously Lockie bought into it and how has he, uh, or how did he help initially with the growth of the company and then where it's sort of at today, um, with the new location? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a bit of a story, to be honest, as to how Lockie got involved. And it starts from, from really sad beginnings. So in, in late 2016, I was about a year in business by that point in time. One of my coaches, Scott, got in an accident. He broke his neck um, and he became a quadriplegic in, in, a, in a terrible accident at Coogee Beach. Um, and he was my only coach and at, at the time. Uh, it was myself and Sean who helped me build the business and, and, and Scott who was, you know, my first employee. He wasn't, I think he was contracting, but he was the first person outside of the guys who founded it, you know, to, to be involved in it. And Scott was amazing, you know, an incredible coach, um, really passionate, cert for no uni degree, made up for it in bounds um, in the absence of a uni degree. He was just, just a gun and he, you know, he had this accident, became a quadriplegic was really devastating for him he was young he was 28 or or 29 um and that happened december 2016 and and at the time aa wasn't in a great place i would almost run out of money i'd had some terrible mentors take me in some in some bad directions i'd spent all of that 140 grand initially we had to move into this larger facility where we are now, which we're about to move to a new one. But the reason we had Scott there was to try and give me a bit of freedom so I could try and drum up some business because I wasn't going to actually, the the brand wasn't going to survive unless I tried to be a business owner. Um, So he broke his neck and that was obviously devastating for him and, and for his wife, Angie. And I thought it would be a good idea to try and raise some money for him. Um, so I started to go fund me as, as was popular back then. 
um, and it, it got a bit of traction in some media. Um, it, it went viral. I, 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 that term's probably lost a bit of its meaning now, but it, but it went viral. It got 122,000 US dollars raised in 20 days, which is unreal. Um, and so that got some attention on the brand. Not that I ever wanted the attention. My, my goal was to, to make money for Scott, but inadvertently there was some attention on the brand and, and that's where Lockie came. He came in for a charity lift. You know, 40, 50 people turned up to the gym, brought whatever they could to, to donate to live with Scott. And Lockie came, he happened to live around the corner. He was like, mate, I wouldn't want to check it out. We'd, we'd previously interacted when I was at uni, um, which I think I mentioned. Um, and then literally he said, hey, um, why don't you come early to my 30th? I'd like to chat to you about something. He'd had a birthday coming up in a, like a month's time later or something like that. So I came to his birthday and he said, you know, what are you looking for in a business partner? And I said, someone who's not me. <laughs> like someone who's, who, who can't do what I can do. And, and that, that was lucky. Obviously, to, at this point, he's a GWS giant. He's, he's, he's young. He's innovative. He'd been known for, you know, putting forth some, some ideas and reinvigorating plyometrics training and putting the emphasis back on hamstring training. And he'd, he'd developed quite an audience on Instagram by that point in time. And he was what the brand needed to actually get it to where it is today because I was never going to get it there. I was a, a semi-pro S&C coach who was, did not have a skill set or by virtue of the choices, I didn't pursue the pro sport. I pursued the private sector side. Um, I would have never been able to build the reputation we've ended up building without him. So kind of to answer that question, you know, he was absolutely pivotal in the growth. He was, he was necessary. Um, to get it and, and Lockie did an amazing thing. He pretty much just said to me, hey, just tell me what you put in um, to get the business. And I, you know, they were pretty basic financials at that point. It was like all scribbled on a piece of paper. I once had $140,000. Now I have nothing. That's how much I put into the business. <laughs> and he's like, sweet, no worries. Um, I'm at you dollar for dollar. So it was, it was pretty loose. Um, and he essentially just trusted me. He trusted me that that, that was in, indeed true. I, I couldn't actually even prove it. This is the funny thing. I couldn't even prove that's how much money I put into it because so much of the equipment I'd bought, the signage I'd done, all this shit because I had no idea what I was fucking doing. So are we allowed to swear? Yeah, We're 100%. Swearing. Well, I had Woody on. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, of course. Um, that, that's, I, I should be able to swear quite liberally then. Yeah, I had no fucking idea what I was doing running a gym. So... I had spent so much money on, on redundant, unnecessary things that by the time Lockie was ready to invest a year and a bit later, I had no money in the bank account and could only show him what was in the new gym, which was like $30,000 worth of stuff. And Lockie literally just had to trust me. Um, and, you know, thankfully I wasn't bullshitting him. And he just, you know, he matched me dollar for dollar. Um, he was at Giants at the time. He originally would, you know, work with at AA on a Thursday and it'd be around and we just slowly started to build it from there first with, um, with content um, and, you know, would slowly develop the, the organization of what it is today. It's pretty ironic because knowing who you are today and obviously being a part of your business mentorship, it's the complete opposite to obviously what was happening back then. Because I reckon I've made every single mistake in the book and and then some that aren't even in the book um, because it is the 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 business that you would have seen if you were 
following us in 2016 and, and 2017 and uh, maybe a little bit of 2018, but I think maybe 2017. They're not even, even closely related to each other before. That was part of the iterations and the evolution of the business. And, you know, that might be a, a good point of conversation for the guys who, who want to hear about gym evolutions. We were, we were a powerlifting gym, fundamentally, at, at its core. Um, not because it's what Lockie and I wanted, but we used to treat our business like we were, we were a ship in the ocean and wherever the breeze pushed us, we would go rather than being a ship in the ocean with a compass and a direction and a skipper that could guide the boat where we wanted to go. We were very reactive and whatever kind of fell in our laps or um, kind of presented immediately in front of us, we just went with it. You know, there were so many issues. Um, we made so many mistakes. Um, we burned a lot of friendships and a lot of relationships and pissed a lot of people off and you name it, we did it. Um, because we were reactive and we were just dealing with, we were just dealing with things as they were, as they came without, you know, holding true to that original vision of being an authority for the athlete side of things. We just end up becoming a, a powerlifting gym for Instagram influencers. You know, it was, it was really off course and it, it, it took a big, it took a lot of volatility and a big kind of clashing of heads and a big reevaluation to get it back on track after 2017 because the brand was was unidentifiable really to what to where it is now yeah and what was probably the biggest step you took during that time for for people that are interested in in fixing it and getting that that ship back on track to the direction that obviously it is today yeah well we were speaking about this a couple of days ago in our mentorship and I was talking about kind of priorities in, in your business and, and making sure that you understood where you're going with the business and, and what underpinned you to get to the, to the next level. And back in 2017, high revenue, actually we had a lot of revenue coming in because we had a membership model where PTs paid rent and there was very little overhead. I had very low staff demand, uh, low employment costs. But the, the downside of the business running the way it did back then was I was essentially a gym for hire. Athletes Authority was a gym for hire. That was, that was the best way to describe it. Um, but what was appealing back then was the revenue. I had revenue coming in and I was mildly profitable one year in a business, which, which is pretty, pretty rare because I was letting anyone kind of come into the gym and, and bring in any of their kind of ideas and, and baggage sometimes with, along with it. And I was, I was almost shackled by that because I didn't want to lose the revenue. So I just let it keep going and keep going and keep going because I didn't want to lose money um, and, and see that revenue drop. Meanwhile, the, the gym was dying. Like the, the culture was gone. Um, the vision um, was so obscured by it was not in a good place. And this is after Lockie's injection. Right? So Lockie's injected all his capital. He's over at the Giants. He's relying on me to run the facility, and we're running it like reactive morons. 
And I know I'm sounding very critical of myself back then, um, but hindsight's so beautiful that I feel like I don't mind that I went through all of that because it just is. We're, we're running like reactive morons. So realistically, what we did in order to get out of that is, and, and in Lockie's words, we trimmed the fat. And what we, what we mean by that is we took our gym back to its core, which was athlete development, which literally saw it at one point. I think we cancelled about 80 memberships over a two-month period and went from six or seven coaches to like two. Like everything just disappeared. And, you know, all the powerlifters moved to another gym, all the Instagram influencers moved to another gym, they actually opened up their own around the corner, which is a whole other story. But blessing in disguise, it wasn't back then, but it was blessing to go back to our roots and, you know, if you think of like a, like a tree, our gym was pruned. Like it just got pruned. Actually, it was more like a wildfire. It just got burned through to the core and we were left with a stump, but with the chance to regrow um, and, and sprout new seeds. And that's kind of what we did. At that point, we, we went purely to athlete development. We essentially eradicated gym membership in its entirety. There was no real thing as gym membership. And all we had back then was athlete development um, and weightlifting. And there was some powerlifting. One of the coaches wanted to say he, he was much more aligned with powerlifting as a competition, not powerlifting as a hobby. And, and we felt like at the time that, that was close enough to the vision that you know, we would integrate those barbell sports as, as part of the brand. So when we went from, I think about 600 K in revenue back down like 250 or 300 K and, and started again, really. Yeah. Which was full yeah. on. That's very, time. very substantial for a business, isn't it? To, to have that revenue. And then all of a sudden over the course of a couple of months, you know, obviously less than half. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. We were worried. We, you know, we had speaking quite transparently back in early 2017, we had like, I remember, I remember, and I tell you guys this in, in the mentorship. I remember when I first realized we had to start paying GST and I had a business activity statement that I had to pay and I hadn't planned for this. And then all of a sudden there was like, you actually have to pay 10% of everything you earn as GST. And then if you're not rolling over losses, you have to pay company tax. And I remember going, I can't even pay this. Like I can't even pay my super. Um, so, you know, 2017 to pay back my own super. It was like, it got that, it got that bad. And it's looking back, I'm like, God, Christ, what the hell were we doing? Um, but that is, that's realities of a lot of, lot of businesses, especially bricks and mortar businesses. Um, we get, we overcapitalize, we buy too much equipment, our rent costs too much, all the things to keep a business operational. And there's, there's not a good model in place to actually make money. We didn't have a model back then. So, you know, stripping it all back, rebuilding model, going to the athlete development program in 2017 and, and starting from scratch would end up being the best thing we ever did because it's, it's where we are. It, it kind of foreshadowed where we are today. And 2017 is only four years ago. Like that's not, not that long ago really, is it? Yeah, no, not at all. 
Um, not at all. And even then, even in even after the, the implementation of those programs, we first peeled back weightlifting. Um, that was that went. Um, and then the ADP would grow, then we'd, we literally gut the whole weightlifting program, then we dropped again, and then revenue would grow as we built the ADP again, and then we'd gut the powerlifting and that would drop again. We went through a lot of iterations in those, in those last kind of four years. And yeah, it's not a lot of time, but you know, from where we were then to where we are today, we'll, we'll turn over estimated, um, like 1.2 million for a gym five years in, six years in. Um, and I and it's crazy to think that that was a growth we had, you know, only only four years ago from where we were. And what 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 has been probably the the one or two the biggest things that I suppose got you in the right direction? Obviously, after you've culled, you've trimmed the fat. Um, now you're running the ADP. Um, maybe you want to explain what the ADP is for a lot of people because I think it's a business model that it's quite it was different at the time, um, and now you see more and more people running it because obviously it's effective and it works. So. Yeah, so it is. So me and Lockie actually take, you know, it's it's quite flattering. You know, a lot of the things that we have done have ended up being a lot more common now. And that's great because we've always said we wanted to kind of lead from the front and we're happy to make some errors and and to, to fuck up a bit if it means that more S&C coaches can have a, a slightly more direct path to, to what they want because, you know, that's important for us is to, to give back to the community. So in terms of what the ADP is, one of the biggest limitations that we'd seen in the Model 2, really that point in time, was while semi-private was somewhat of a thing, I think most people would agree, you know, CrossFit had been around, you know, group classes were, were around and semi-private, that semi-individualized experience was around. Um, it wasn't super common. Um, and the main model for training people was still one-on-one. -on -one. And, you know, that is cost prohibitive either for the athlete or if you end up training an athlete for three times a week and only making a hundred bucks which is ends up being cost limiting for you as a as an snc coach and a business owner so what we wanted to do was to create a model which allowed athletes to train as frequently as they wanted with a program that was semi-individualized you know it had the foundations that were the same and then individualized based on on their, their unique needs at the time um, in a semi-private training space, which allowed us to scale the business. Because that is the problem with most um, PT businesses and, and most gyms is that they produce models that don't scale. If they don't scale, you can't grow because uh, you end up running into huge bottlenecks. So we said, look, we think athletes will be willing to compromise on the one-on-one -on -one attention in order to make something cost-effective where they get everything they possibly need. So we said, we decided on, you know, I think back then it was that for the price of a PT session and gym membership, you can train four or five times a week. Um, and, and that worked and that, that got some traction. And then we would add things, like we'd add amenities like recovery, Normatex, we'd then add no gaps physio at a later date. We'd start adding on to that, that base program to add more value into the program. And, and that's probably really the biggest thing that, that has shifted the business forward in the last, say, two years is that integration piece. So when we looked at the ADP as the training piece, we said, cool, we need to integrate the recovery piece, we need to integrate the community piece, and then we need to integrate the, the rehab piece, that's when it skyrocketed. 
um, and you know it would end up going doubling our revenue probably over the last two years. Yeah. And, and that blended sort of business model that's starting to become more and more popular as well. Um, even whether that's you know like a trainer outsourcing that physio to another physio in the the community or something like that. Again, do you do you sort of see that was you were the first organization to do that well enough for then people to replicate that sort of structure? I don't know for the first um, because I don't know every gym that that exists and, and what they're doing. Um, but I think we were perhaps one of the first to make it obvious it's what we were doing um, and and stand behind it. I remember when we first integrated, the first iteration of integrating physio for our athletes was to provide no gaps physiotherapy. So what we did is we got a, we got a sports physio, um, Nilesh Murdy, who was at the Giants at the time. We paid him 100% of the revenue so we would make no money from physio we provided a free space for him to work out of and we provided essentially everything that he needed um and we said hey if you're an athlete in our program you get access to no gap sports physiotherapy which would mean they had private health care they'd swipe their card if it covered the minimum 55 dollars um, which was our minimum repayment on on physio which which most would do if they were percentage based the athlete didn't have to pay i remember at the time um a very popular physio called us monkeys because we were um, diminishing and degrading um, physiotherapy as a service. And I remember at the time going, this is going to be, I'm going to look back at this and go, this is going to be a landmark moment because about four years, everyone's going to want to do this. It only took two. (laughs) It only took two because what we then end up doing um, is we would use that first iteration to get a second iteration where we said, hey, um, we don't just want to provide physio for performance athletes who get niggles. We want to provide S&C for athletes who are seriously injured. And we inverted the model. So we, we flipped the emphasis. So the emphasis was you get all the rehab from the physio you need, but then you also get the facility to train as much as you want. So we, we leveraged the ADP model um, kind of span it 180 and said, look, now now you're a rehab athlete, you get all the physio need, plus you get everything else. So we, we still try to create that integration. And and that has been um that has been huge, I think, for the industry. A lot of people want to do it. I'm glad. I'm I'm happy that a lot of people want to do that. You get way better outcomes for the athletes and that's the most important thing. And that's the beauty about free market, right? Um, and that's why I love free markets because the consumers end up deciding what they want. Like the consumers are the ultimate arbiters of what works and what doesn't. We can have all the fucking theory and the ideas of what's going to work, but the consumer is the arbiter of, of if it actually will or not. And the athletes in our rehab program love it because it's everything they never, ever got from physio. Everything that they, every, all the downsides of the traditional physiotherapy model were resolved when it was a physio who saw you on the bed who also saw you to train an hour later on the gym floor. And then we'll see you another three times that week on the gym floor. Um, you know, it, that was viable for the physio because we're able to scale the model. And we haven't said a physio, you know, you, you're 
your value is not in the amount of patients you see on a bed. Your value is in the amount of athletes you can manage. And so, and, and that shift in thinking is allowed, you know, guys like Justin and, and Al and Mon to, to manage about how many times they're on, on the bed or swiping cards. I just care about how many athletes they can manage. And that there is a good commercial proposition for it. They, you know, I make good money and so I can give them a great wage and, and the athletes are happy. Like, and that's really what you want in a business model is go, is it, does the consumer win? Yes. Does the business win? Yes. Does the employee win? Yes. If you can answer those three things, your model's good. If you can't answer yes to all those three things, if someone has to make a serious sacrifice, like for example, does the consumer win? Yes. Does the business win? Yes. If the business wins, that's great. But if the employee doesn't, if the employee loses out of the business model, it's not going to be a sustainable business model because you have way too much employee churn. So, you know, when, whenever you're creating a model, you need to be able to satisfy all those three domains because they're the three stakeholders in a business. Like, does the business make enough money? Is it profitable? Does the consumer want to buy that product? And do the employees want to deliver the product? You know, if you have to have to satisfy all those three things. And the big problem with the traditional physiotherapy model is right now, consumers don't win because they don't get a comprehensive solution to their training. The practice wins because they charge $130 a consult and the employee doesn't win because they only get paid 30 bucks an hour. So the model, the traditional physiotherapy model is broken. And, you know, the benefit... The reason why I think we've been so successful is actually because we're not physio. It's actually because I, I wasn't brought up doing a five-year physiotherapy degree and then doing four 10-week placements at four clinics, which all do the same thing, where I'm like indoctrinated into thinking that the only way to run a business is to run this clinic model on a, on a session-by-session uh, framework. Yeah, like, but it's kind of... Actually, it also goes back to what you said before about the PT model as well. So what you've done, you've solved both of those models. And I think at the moment, especially physios, like I'm not a physio and you're not a physio, but we deal with physios on a, on a daily basis. Um, they're actually lost at the moment. They don't really know what their role is anymore. They've got an identity crisis. They want to, physios want to be coaches right now. You know, they want to be on the gym floor. And, you know, when I realized that, I was like, oh, well, maybe we should do something about that. Maybe we could actually make their job really satisfactory and purposeful if we actually just got them on the gym floor. So why don't we just run rehab sessions? Like, why don't we get them on the gym floor coaching 15 hours a week and then on the bed 15 hours a week? What a surprise. It was, as you mentioned, we see a lot of physios going into the into the S&C space, you know, you turn up to an ASCA, uh, like qualification and they go around the room and everyone introduces and every second person's a physio wanting to do a strength condition course. You don't see the inverse. You don't see every, you don't see 50% of people at a physiotherapy course doing uh, our S&Cs. You don't see the inverse. Um, so I find that really interesting that, that there is this, there is this clearly this shift um, in the identity and the role of a physio. And I think we're benefiting from that because we were probably perhaps one of the first guys through the door. You know, it's like the gold rush. Like the guys who first 
like landed. It was a Ballarat. Or, I don't know where the gold rush was, to be honest. There was one in Gimpy. Oh, where the gold rush was? Gimpy. Let's say Gimpy, since that, that's close to home. Um, you know, if there was a gold rush in Gimpy, the first guy who starts digging and finds gold, he is in the box seat. Because he, for as long as this guy can keep a secret and, and keep the, you know, get his team of guys to, to mine for gold, the more he's benefiting. What's happening and what we're seeing is that the, the traditional physiotherapy practices are so ingrained, their roots run so deep in their pre-existing ideas that they can't evolve quick enough. They can't iterate quick enough. And I tell all you guys in the mentorship, the, the best thing we can do is be agile. Like observe what's going on in the marketplace and adapt to it, respond to it. And there's, it was the whole reason why we did, we moved to that semi-private coaching because there's only so many 6 p.m. training slots available in someone's week. There's only so many. And you can only satisfy so many people at 6 p.m. if you do one-on-ones. You know, and, and then most likely they're your most long-standing client who pay you the least. So your most expensive time slot is where you make the least money because they've been doing it for four years and you only charge them 50 bucks an hour. Um, so I find that stuff really interesting that we've got the benefit because we're not in the industry to be probably more adaptable and be more willing to, to test out new, new ideas. And as I said before, most of my ideas suck. Most of them are wrong. But because I test so many, every once in a while I actually land on something that sticks and, you know, I, I, I get to reap the rewards for it. And what, what sort of advice would you give um, personal trainers and private S&C coaches on that same sort of topic of thinking a little bit more laterally in regards to your time and when you're investing your, um, I suppose, your expertise in, in a day? Well, maybe I can give advice independently. I'll give the advice to the PT and then I'll give the advice to yep. S&C coaches, maybe in the reverse order. The, the best advice I have for an SNC coach, if you're an existing SNC coach and you've gone through the traditional university model and you now want to work in SNC, I would tell them that they need to PT. I would tell them that you need to do, you know, you need to clean the gym floor, so to speak, for a while. And you need to do the basics. You need hours underneath your belt. You, you can't be selective with who you work with because you can't even fucking talk to a person for more than 15 minutes yet. Like, so you need, you just need hours on the gym floor. And I see that as if, if we had a problem in our industry at the moment, it's that it's, it's overqualified, underexperienced coaches expecting an opportunity because they've got a three year university degree and they're being garbage. They're no good. They're no good. They've got no experience and they want a high wage and they provide no value except the degree on which, you know, they, they, they spent the three years studying for, but it, it doesn't give them the skill set that they need. So that would be the advice to the S&C coach who's gone the traditional uni model. You know, if, and if you're listening to this and you're going the uni model, but you haven't finished uni yet, the best thing you can do right now is stop pulling beers on the weekend and become a PT. Fucking quit Woolies, Quit your fucking retail job. Quit pulling beers at the pub. Go do your Cert 3, Cert 4 and start coaching because you will be so far ahead of your peers in three years' time 
because you've got three years of experience and you've made all the fuck ups of, you know, writing programs that are too long or not knowing how to coach someone's squat and not understanding periodization in practice. You've made all those fuck ups already. Or not even be able to talk to the person that's in front of you. Yeah. Or not being able to communicate to them, which is Christ, you know, that is one of the biggest issues is trainers who can't, can't breach the surface level of discussion with a client. They can't breach that surface level. Um, and, you, and as a result, they don't build the rapport and the trust and the credibility in order for someone to be willing to spend the money with them. Um, so that would be my advice to the uni, to the uni Avenue SNC coach. And there's lots of them. There's heaps of them. So hopefully that lands on some ears. And then the, advice for the for the pt um who well actually what's the context in which this pt operates are they wanting to get into snc are they just trying to grow their business what, just general business growth of this pt to make it yeah great um if they're a pt the very first thing i'd be doing is acknowledging you first need the awareness acknowledging that you are on a hamster wheel because if you stop running, your business stops. You have to first acknowledge that. It's the very first thing. You are running on a hamster wheel. If you don't turn that wheel over, you don't make any money. And that's an unfortunate reality, but it is what it is. So the very first thing that you need to do as, as a PT for, for general business growth is start to create a model that allows you to A, first scale, so it can be more, worth more than your fixed 70, 80, 90, 40, 100, whatever it is per hour. So you need to be able to scale and work with more than one person at once. And, and by doing that, you have to identify what are the commonalities between your clients and how can you train multiple people at the same time without diminishing the, the quality of the experience, which is, as you know, is actually easier. And in fact, probably having people around each other is actually makes the quality of the training experience better. But that's a bit of a mindset shift. Um, and then the, the second thing, once you've created a scalable business, then you need to ask, well, how do, I create, uh, how do I create redundancy? How do I actually make myself redundant? And at that point in time, you start treating your personal training business, which is not really a business, as a business because you're not, you're not the bottleneck for every operation. So if you can get an employee and like you've done, you know, you've, you've started to find other people who share your vision to, to deliver your product, that actually creates those redundancies, which, is, which allows you at, on a Thursday afternoon to do a podcast and to create content and it allows you to run a workshop on a Sunday or a Saturday because you don't have to, have, you don't have to cancel your sessions. No, that's the type of things that always undermine um, you know, a self-employed business model into a business that actually operates by clockwork is when you choose to make yourself redundant, which can also be scary because then what the fuck do you do? And that's part of your personal and professional evolution is to realize that your role will evolve as the business grows. There was a time four years ago where I was coaching and I had personal training clients. Now, but, you know, look at me. I'm clearly not coaching and training that much. Like, <laughs> I'm not doing any of that at all. Well, that's a really good segue because it is one of the questions I did want to ask because a few people that I said I was going to have a chat to you today, they actually wanted to know what you do because a lot of the time you actually don't see a whole lot of you um, at the forefront of AA. If people yeah. know about AA, they know about you, but if they only know about AA, they don't necessarily know about you. They might know about Lockie or some of the other people involved, but not necessarily yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and that is by design because the only way you'll ever interact with me on via the Athletes Authority medium is if you inquire to one of our products and our services. That's the only way you'll ever, you'll ever kind of come in contact with me. And before maybe, maybe I'll go back, I'll explain kind of what I do and, and how I fell into this role. I think one of the most important things over and above having the right people in your organization, um, and even this applies even as an individual, um, you don't, you, just having the right people isn't enough and it isn't sufficient. You need to have the right people in the right roles. The right people in the right roles. I'm the right person for athletes authorities. Mean, you know, besides me, like I don't think anyone's going to bleed for this business more than us do. But if I was head of performance, our business would not be where, where it is today because I'm the right person, but I'm in the wrong role. So one of the things that me and Lockie by design decided to do was to look at what our skill sets are um, and what, where our unique value is and give ourselves permission, both of us independently, just to do that, just to lean into those skill sets specifically. And my skill set happens to be in sales. That, that is my skill set. Um, if I can just grab the pump and pump my own tires for a second. The thing that I am I'm effective at, I can reproduce um, reliably, is building relationships with, with interested um, athletes and interested strength and strength condition coaches, solve problems for them and help them see how our services facilitate that problem solving. So the best way to think of it is I'm a salesman. So the only time you see me is if you're, you're actually at that point in the sales cycle where you need to interact with another human. And, and that would be me. And so I've actually, you know, I'm at the point now where, as you can tell, this is not athlete's authority. That's my, this is my garage gym. This is, you know, it's athlete's authority slightly more improved. I don't have to be at work. I don't have to be at AA. Um, I could go weeks without being at AA and maybe some athletes would miss me. They'll be like, oh, where's Carbon? I haven't seen you for ages. But from a practical perspective, the operations, nothing would change. Um, everyone's in the right roles. My role, I can do my role from anywhere as long as I can access emails and make phone calls um, and communicate with my team. I, I can do that from anywhere. And that's probably half the reason why you don't really see me around on, on any of our social platforms. It's because the honest answer is I'm not really around all that much. Um, I'm strategizing, I'm taking sales calls, I'm working on you know, the next initiative, I'm working on strategy, I'm working, you know, having meetings with potential opportunities. That's kind of what I do. Um, and that really started to take form probably in the last two years from maybe say late, yeah, let's say, June of 2019 through to through to now is when I've really been in that role where I've had no coaching obligations and I haven't had to be on the gym floor in any capacity. Even though that you're not around like on a day-to-day basis, does the the rest of the staff at AA know that you're still working and still, um, I suppose, furthering the business and they're not necessarily say, oh, Carl's not here, he's not working. They know that you're working on the company. <laughs> Like, it's a good question. There's a, we've, 
we've encouraged Lockie and I a really open dialogue and there's a lot of trust in our business. And I'm really fortunate for that because it hasn't always been that way. We had, we literally used to have team meetings back in 2017 where I'd say one thing and the people working out of AA would say something back, but they actually were doing the exact opposite. Like that's how bad the culture was. At, at this point, there is a, there is a lot of trust. Um, and where we can, we also, uh, Lockie and I try to be as, as facilitating as possible for our coaches and our physios and everyone to, to run their own race. You know, if Justin wants to do something, unless it's, unless it's, you know, ideologically opposed to our vision, we, we let him do it. We, we just let him do it. And, and that type of freedom, I think means that they trust that I'm working in the business best interest as well. Um, Thursday's my day off for family, but I have been on mentorship calls, which generate revenue for the business. Um, I do content like this. Um, I've gone into meetings with our different partnerships and stuff and you know, negotiated and done strategy, you know, and that's on my day off. Um, and I think one of the things that is a testament to a, a director or someone in my role is do I still do the dirty work? And that's, I think, is probably what saves my face is the guy that's at the gym building equipment on a Sunday afternoon it's not my employees, it's me. And I think that's probably what saves face um, is and me still doing those types of things when the gym needs it. And do you think the culture starts top down? So you, you, you are the culture, you and Lockie are the culture and then you're building that down instead of up? Yeah, it's so funny you say that. Um, Scott had a great way of describing culture. Culture isn't what you say it is, it is what it is. And everyone talks about culture and you read books about culture and, you know, how to improve workplace organization, workplace culture and all those things. But it's the law of correspondence as above, so below. If your team don't believe that you would fucking clean the toilet if there was a shit stain on it, why the fuck would they? Like, why would they? If they don't believe you would empty the bins if they were full, why would they? If they don't think you would tidy up the desk, why would they? As above, so below. Law of correspondence. And um, they're, they're three pretty crude examples, but they're three things that you might think of a director as not doing. The directors shouldn't you know, grab the toilet brush and, and clean the skitty. That's, that's exactly what a director should be doing. And it, it reminds me, uh, did you ever watch that, those, that American series of Undercover Boss? Yeah, another one, yeah. Yeah, where like like in huge corporate organizations, which we're not, obviously, where the a CEO or CFO would actually operate as if they're just doing menial tasks, and they would get to listen to what people actually thought of them. Yeah, um, and and hear the the stories on the ground. I, me and Lockie, try and do it the same way. You know, if we expect our coaches to stay back um, and do something outside of scope, you better bet that we would be willing to do that. You know, if we expect, you know toilets to be clean if you take a dump in it and you leave a skitty we got to hold ourselves to the same standard and Lockie has that saying that we'll put on the new facility we accept the standards that we walk past and that starts from the top so yeah there is a top-down um application to culture in that sense 
it's kind of like it's been built because um, obviously he's been in the uh, the um, team setting. It's kind of like he's taken that team setting and dropped it across into the the private. Like we know that from being around sport, but a lot of people that run organizations have never really been sportsmen or understand sport. So they don't understand yeah. the similarities there. Well, we have taken so many, you know, we've taken so many learning lessons from sport and from athletes and the, the things, the sacrifices that athletes make are similar to the sacrifices that business owners need to make. Um, and, you know, everyone gets angry at, at the, the business guys who succeed because they make all the money, but they also made all the decisions and all the sacrifices that the employees never wanted to make. You know? And that's the beauty of entrepreneurs. And that's exactly what happens in, in elite sport. Everyone has a go at, you know, the 23 year old kid making 600 K a year with his rugby league contract. But this kid fucking lived and breathed sport when you fucking wanted to put your feet up and his career is one third, the length of yours. You know, so it's you learn there's a lot of parallels from sport to business um, because they're driven by consumer. Sorry, that's, I'm not sure if you hear that. That's my I wife. Could hear that, yeah. My wife, <laughs> loving it. My wife is having a great time listening to podcasts. Um, it's so funny. Honey, I'm on a podcast, my love. I'm so sorry. <laughs> she's apologized, everyone. No, she's, um, so she's having a great time. She's having a great time. <laughs> She deserves to have a great time. She looks after my son. Um, so, so where were we at? Parallels. Uh, the parallels with business, yeah. And obviously, because AA is very system dominant and I think that's pretty clear from the outside. So again, that's been taken across from sport, you would say as well? Absolutely. So what Lockie's done, you know, at, at a, at a professional, with a professional sporting team, your, your, your judge, your judge and your jury is results like it has to be that is what's so beautiful about sport that's why we fucking love sport is because it's ultimately um you live and die by the results that you achieve um and there is an idea that Lockie kind of instills in in all the interns and all the coaches said if you have to do something more than three times it should be a system so if you have to write a program more, you have to you know, think about what plyometric option to choose more than three times, you should systemize it. And so that philosophy, because you, you've only got limited resources, you've only got limited time and results matter. So you have to try and create predictability as much as you can with, with results. And so Lockie takes everything, all those ideas from pro sport um, and that systems-based approach to problem solving and applied it to private sector where there is usually, and this is changing because I think people are catching on to this idea, where you know most gym owners and SNC coaches run their business in the absence of systems. They have no systems. You know, they get a new client and then they sit there and decide what tests to do, and they sit there with a blank Excel spreadsheet and then decide what program to run. And everything is they're married to this idea of ultimate individualization. But in reality, pro sports players don't get ultimate individualization. Like, and they're on million dollar contracts. Why do you think you're amateur, you know, hockey player playing for club in white blinking line 
on an Excel document waiting for you to input something. It doesn't need that. Um, it, it needs smart systems that allow you to produce results repeatedly. Um, and I, I'm, I love Lockie for that. He, you know, as you know, he's the systems guy. I'm not. I'm learning to become a systems guy um, as well as spending enough time around it. But that would be absolutely a takeaway. You guys, if, if you have to do something more than three times systemizing, simple and rule, I love that. Do you think that um, a lot of the time when you systemize things, you have to invest, whether it be time or money? Um, so, for example, like if you're doing programming, you might buy Team Builder or Train Heroic or something like that as, as your system, um, which a lot of people should do regardless. Yeah. Um, do you think that people aren't willing to do that because it's that initial upfront cost, but they don't see the benefit off the back of it? Right. Yeah. So people have a huge, not people, a lot of people have a difficulty in seeing first, second, and third order consequences things. And we've spoken about this. If there is a short-term gain to be made, it is likely that there is a longer-term consequence to be had. And the inverse, there is likely to be a long-term gain. Now, you, we can think of training in that way. You have to exert yourself and it's hard and there's a short-term loss because it's challenging, you're fatigued, you have to output and exert yourself. There's a long-term gain that if you provide a stimulus, you'll get better. So we can, you know, and we're coaches. So we see this in some contexts. We get that in some contexts, but then we're like, I don't want to fucking spend 400 bucks on Team Builder. I don't want to do that. Meanwhile, they're spending 20 hours a week programming when they could be spending that 20 hours coaching and making money. But yeah, this is a, this is a fallacy that if, that if there's a short-term cost, that it's not worth pursuing. Most of the time, things with short-term costs are worth pursuing. Think about it this way. Maybe it's the best way to do it. You've got $500 and um, you know, Tesla stocks are $50. I wish they were $50. They're obviously not, but let's just say $50. You have to buy, you can buy 10 Tesla stocks, which means you lose $500. You have, you have lost your cash, which is your, what you buy things with in order to buy the stock. And before you can liquidate, you'd have to sell the stock and that's determined by, by the market. But if you were so worried about losing your $500, you'd never ever invest into a stock that is likely to have a good return. You'd never buy a house because you wouldn't want the short-term cost of losing your liquid capital, which is crazy. So when you think about it in some context, everyone's like, yeah, obviously, that's just investment. Like, that's just a good investment. But then they don't treat their, their resources, which is their time, which is very much finite, to the same degree. They think, oh, no, I'd rather just continue writing programs on an Excel spreadsheet and starting from scratch and changing the template every time I see a new client because they want four days or five days or three days off. Shit, now my formatting's fucked. I need to fucking do this all over again. Then actually just creating some systems that allow them to scale and to grow. And, you know, Lockie does that so well. You know, we're known for our programming um, and our quality in our programming. And we write only ever five programs a block. Like, that's as much as we write. And our ACL protocol system, no matter where you're at, you know, in your ACL journey to rehab, 
we test you, you find out where you sit in your ACL, in, in that ACL protocol, and there you start. And the whole ACL protocol is written. And you know, everyone goes, how have you done what you've done with all these ACLs and helping all these people? Well, the first thing we did was decide how we were going to look after them first. And we wrote out our protocol for it. Imagine if all my physios had to reevaluate and rewrite the new program for every new ACL. We wouldn't, be able to, we wouldn't be able to grow it in the way and we wouldn't be able to look after as many ACLs because we didn't have the system underpinning it. Um, so, and you know, it's, it's not as black and white as that, but like people listen to that and go, oh, they're running a generic program. Not necessarily. There are certain elements that obviously you're implementing each time, but it's the skeleton of the program. Yeah, yeah. So that's the quality of the protocol. You know, if we, we don't arbitrarily, you know, let's say you're week 23 with X, Y, and your, your current XYZ markers. We don't start you there. We don't press play on the program and then it just rolls out for the next 32 weeks. You know, we don't do that, obviously. We have some really strong systems that allow us to reevaluate and iterate the program. But the fact that our coaches don't have to start with a blank, empty canvas is what's important. They know what the next progressions are based on what we value in the ACL rehabilitation process which they can immediately implement when that person's met whatever certain criteria it is for them to proceed and to progress. Um, and, you know, that's where I think, okay, let's maybe describe it this way. Maybe this is a good way to describe it. Templates are not something you marry. Templates are something you date. That's maybe the best way to think of it. You date a template, you see it, have a good time with it. You, you take a few days off. Then go back, take it on a second day, reevaluate some things, maybe progress a few things, have a few days off. You just date. You date your templates. You date your protocols. You don't marry. You don't go, oh, it's day 23. That's where you need to be up to. No, we have some athletes who come in for six months post their ACL surgery, but are more like two months. And so we don't just arbitrarily say, oh, you're at two months and now you do it again. They may accelerate really quickly and in the first two months be at seven months. Um, from a qualitative presentation of how they're going. Um, so, you know, we, we, we use the protocol to, to work for us, not against us in that sense. Yeah. And with your ACL programs, and obviously that's one example, but you put out a lot of, um, I suppose, quality content as well. Um, and for a facility, again, earlier on, if we go back a couple of years, it's probably one of the few that were doing that. You know, you took that way that scarcity model and you actually were happy to share your ideas and things that were going on whether it be exercises or philosophies and things like that. How has that helped you, I suppose, build your brand and also collaborate with other coaches and um, companies and things like that? What a great, yeah, this is a, this is a perennial question because I think a lot of coaches fear sharing information um, and they fear that it's going to just be um, copied and pasted. I think actually, just like it happened today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so literally before we jumped on this call, um, Kieran and Flat has called out some guy who's literally just copying pasted Alex Matera's thing and, and repost into a little bit. And shit like that's going to happen. And you know what? It doesn't devalue your system. It doesn't make what you produce any less worthwhile or valuable to you anyway. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what are your goals? Like, our goals and central to Lockie's vision is that he wants a whole S&C industry to rise. The whole 
you know, from the, the guy just coming out of uni to the, the PT who wants to get into SNC to guys like us who are, you know, at the tip of the spear at, at athlete development. We want, he wants the whole industry to rise. The only way to do that is to give people every opportunity to get good quality information and then, then let them decide if they want to use it or not. Because we've never not benefited from sharing information. And we've never not benefited. You know, we, we give away a lot of stuff for free. And the only thing that ends up happening when we give stuff away for free is we make more money. That's the only thing that ever happens is, you know, we give stuff away for free. People see us as trustworthy and as credible and they get a, a chance to um, see what we have to bring to the table. And they're like, hey, what's next? What else can I learn from you guys? What else can you teach me? And of course, there are some things in front of the curtain, there's something behind the curtain. But there's literally not a single topic that is off limits that we couldn't discuss today and that we couldn't talk about. You could ask me anything and I'd share it. Because the only thing that ever happens is we make more money. You know, and if you want to look at this at a grand scale, most of, most of our audience will be familiar with Tesla. His patents are open source. Any fucking engineer who wants to remake his cars can. He's got the patents. He said, you use them. Because my goal is to accelerate the world to using sustainable renewable energy. I don't, I, what, however we get there, I'm cool. With. I'll tell you That's the only thing cool. that people are using off that. Have you noticed all the Range Rovers and Lexus have the, the handles go into the doors now? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, the only yeah. thing they've taken from like, Tesla. Isn't that so pathetic? <laughs> like, like, they've taken the most menial fucking aesthetic thing and said, actually, you know, we're going to use a button for a handle instead of a pull mechanism. How good. Like, yeah. And so, you know, we realised the same thing, same thing, you know. Like, we give... I, I wrote something called the Fitness MBA to help give um, young trainers and young coaches a framework for helping progress their business. Um, and in doing so, we had, we had thousands of people do that course. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little trade secret here. When I built the fitness MBA, I built it in a, in a module unbox next module framework. So you had to do module one in order to unlock module two. So you'd have to do your offer in order to unlock marketing. You'd have to do marketing in order to unlock sales and to unlock it. All you literally need to do is press next, 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 next. Answer 10 questions, which most people can do. Um, and if they get it wrong, it tells you got it wrong and you select a different answer and then press next. In. That's all you have to do. 85% of people, perfect Pareto principle. Like it's, it's a perfect Pareto distribution. 80% of people have not gone past module one. And I've given them everything I know. Everything I know is there. I, I literally share whole funnels of marketing systems. I, sh I gave them my sales frameworks. I told them how to make sales. I've given them our like, customer experience, you know, how we look after our athletes in the first 90 days. I've given them the same templates I use to manage our finances. And 80% of people have not seen any of it. Like, so you can give things away and people, as you've identified, people still don't do it. They don't do it. All they do is they implement the fucking handle. That's what they implement. It's just so funny. It's so funny. Um, and it also means there's a huge opportunity if you are the type of person who does consume, you know, the free content that you share, the free content that we share, free content that a lot of, um, lot of figures share, 
you're going to be way ahead of most people who download it and then never ever read it or never ever consume it or never ever test it. You're going to be way ahead because there's some quality stuff out there in the aggregate and it's the internet, right? You know, everything is available to us these days. Everything is there. Um, but you know, I've, I've, you know, as I said, I, when we give away stuff for free, we make more money. So I'm just going to keep doing that until I'm proven wrong. And, and how has that helped leverage the brand to make deals with companies such as like IronEdge, um, Vald, um, all those other companies that you have these sort of deals with? Well, you know, we, when you're creating partnerships with, with companies that work in the same space for you, have the same audience as you are, but don't do the same thing. So that, that's essentially the idea of a partnership is you share some commonalities, audience, industry, but maybe your, the mechanism is different. If you're trying to create partnerships, you actually need to go, you need to treat them like a customer. You need to go, what are your problems? What are, what are the challenges you have as a brand? And treat them like a customer in the same way you'd ask your athlete. So what are you struggling with? You know, what's holding you back? And if you go from that perspective, you treat a brand that you want to partner with like a customer, um, you start to identify some things. So let's take, um, let's take Inage, for example. Um, we partnered with them in January 2019. They had, been, they had been open for business for about a year prior to that. And anyone who's been around for more than a couple of years in the industry knows that Inage went through some challenging times. They were the the biggest supplier of strength conditioning equipment by by probably orders of magnitude in the early 2010s and late 2000s by an order of magnitude rick had done an incredible thing he got the fitness first contract and fitness first rebranded remember when they went from the blue small s to the capitalized big red f's we had to ramp up um, production in Australian warehouses with Australian engineers, Australian welders, Australian steel workers. Um, and he had these, you know, his, his company went like this very, very quickly with the fitness first. Um, and without disclosing anything that I might ever get in trouble for, you know, that accelerated growth meant that he did have the systems underpinning it and all that needed to happen was for not enough money to come in, you know, on time, you know, a few invoices not to be paid. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm being vague here intentionally um, for the business to crumble and the, for, to essentially go into voluntary administration, which, I, which is common knowledge. I'm, I'm not, I don't think there's any issues talking about that. So then, you know, that happened in 2014, 2015. And if you're around back then, I did this huge fire sale. They were giving away their mint balls for like five bucks because they were just trying to liquidate whatever stock they had to pay back their creditors and call it back. Anyway, Iron Edge comes back. We treated Iron Edge like a customer. Lockie connected with Rick, said, Rick, you know, we know you have some problems. And one of those problems is how are you guys going to relaunch yourself back into this space and, and retake your market share leveraging your existing assets like your email databases and, and all that stuff. And what they needed was someone who was trusted, who had credibility to help them come back to the space. And we said that, hey, look, we have some things that you could leverage. You have some things that we could leverage. 
And that's the beginnings of all partnerships is identifying the needs and then providing solutions to those needs. We did the same thing with Val. They had traction in the professional space, um, but they didn't have traction in the, did the same thing um, and, and built that relationship using those same concepts. Did that work by the way? Cause you, did you get all that? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a similar thing. So those partnerships have been really valuable for us because we've been able to, um, you know, we've been able to invest money that we would otherwise have to invest in equipment into other areas. So, you know, so that's been handy and they've been able to benefit because when COVID hit, you know, who was the first person that sold out? Everything on their store. It was Iron Edge. Iron Edge were the first people to sell out of everything. So, you know, they weren't complaining. They, I reckon without, you know, speaking to Rick explicitly about this, they've probably had the best year on record ever, you know, because when else have you ever sold out of your store and had like pre-orders like 10 months in advance? Um, so yeah, that, that's how, that's how you do partnerships. Treat them like a consumer or a, or a customer and problem solve for them first, identify their needs and then see how you can, you can help them with that. And you've recently, or AA's recently come on board with a few clubs and also um, just yesterday, is it the female athlete podcast? Is that the one? Yeah, female athlete project with Chloe Dalton and she's a, she's a cool girl. And do you have the same mindset, but in reverse when you're trying to be the opposite and you're trying to be the partnership with that organization or that person? Yeah, yeah, literally. I treat ourselves as, hey, what are our, what are our needs and what are their needs um, and how can we can help? You know, if you, if you haven't come across Chloe Dalton yet, she's, a, she's a, an Olympian, won the gold medal at Rio with the sevens also competed as an AFLW player in Geelong Cats and also competed for the Sydney Uni Flames in the NBL. She's an animal, animal. And so she's a gun athlete, um, but grew up in a very sporty family um, throughout the 90s. We're about the same age. And as you guys would know, if you grew up in the 90s, there's, there's no such thing as, as female sport. It was, it was like, it was a non-event. You'd never hear about it in the paper. You'd never hear about it on TV maybe beside golf and tennis and swimming, maybe besides a few sports and a few Olympic sports. So you know, she was sick of a lack of media coverage on, on female sport and she's a female athlete. Of course, her idols are female athletes. Like that's, that's not surprising in the same way that if you're, you're a male athlete, you probably have male idols. And you know, that's not strange because, you know, we, our heroes as somewhat a reflection or a mirror of our potential. That's why they're our heroes because we go, I think I have that potential and that's why they become our heroes. That's why we, we, we gravitate towards them. So it's very hard to be like, I, I really, you know, um, what's in it? Who's a, who's a great, um, uh, Liz Barty. It's really hard for me to, you know, idolize Liz Barty because there's not a lot of girl I see in myself. It's very hard to do that you know, from a purely, purely storytelling perspective. So of course, female athletes need female sports idols. And she didn't get that growing up. So what she wanted to do using new media, which podcast is a new media format, she wanted to start telling the stories of female athletes, which I'm all about because I see, I see how hard our female athletes work in the facility and I, and I see the, the inequality in what is provided um, 
to male athletes versus female athletes. And there are many reasons for that. There are many reasons. One of them is the commercial proposition. So if you can't make money from, from female sport, it's very hard to fund female sport. There are many issues that we need to work through here. And Chloe's, Chloe's got this new initiative. And what Chloe needs right now is she just needs capital. She just needs money to, to keep driving this forward. It's time out of her day. There's things going on in the background. She's got a team behind her. Um, she's filming things. She's producing content. She needs to buy equipment. That's her need. She just needs people to fund the initiative. I was like, I want to do, I want to help you with that. And in return, I can, you can help me reach my target audience, which are female athletes. Because the, the basics are, if you take 10 athletes and five of them male, five of them female, one of those 10, uh, five male athletes are willing to spend $127 a week on, on your training. Because four of the five are like, no, I'll fucking do it myself. Thanks very much. I'll just have an anytime fitness gym membership. Four out of the five females are like, I want help. Please help me. So, you know, the, our female athletes are more likely to use our training. And that's why you see more female athletes in our gym is because they want the help. So, you know, they're my market. So let's, let's help get in front of that market, right? And, and Chloe Dalton was a, was a, was a no-brainer because I believe in her vision. You know, I love sport growing up. It's, it's, it was what I love to do and what I love to participate in and what I love to read. And I didn't care about politics at 10, but I definitely cared about the footy. That's what I read the paper for. Um, and do you and think yeah. you're obviously open-minded and you can see the big picture and you've got, obviously it probably goes way back when, when you didn't understand the big picture, but now you, you have a clear vision, you know where AA wants to go. Um, I know a lot of my experiences, a lot of business owners have no idea and they wouldn't have that foreseeable that you have of investing money in whether it be paid marketing or investing in a podcast. I would literally think that's the worst thing ever. What, what's been your big mind shift in that? And how will the people that don't want to invest that sort of money and that expand their ideas, how will they start to fall behind even quicker now? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest problem when I didn't see the big picture in business, I treated my, I, I made my decisions in my business based off intuition, based off what I thought would be the right thing to do. And I didn't necessarily have an economic or a strategic um, underpinning for my decision-making process. And that's why within a year and a bit, I was a Instagram influencer gym. Because like, yeah, that seems to make sense that a, a female powerlifter um, who's big on Instagram should train at my gym. That's going to be good promotion. So all of a sudden there's, you know, heaps of gym members paying 20 bucks a week who train for two and a half hours in the gym to take up all the available squat racks. And I make no money from them because... That's what I invited. And I take full responsibility for that. Take full responsibility for that. I, I, I treated my business based on my intuition. What I now do is I actually go, when, whenever I think about business, I go, what are the commercial, strategic, um, and I I implications of, of my decisions, commercial and strategic implica implications, and do they get me closer towards what I'm trying to do in business? Um, and now I can, now I have a compass for my decision-making and it wouldn't matter how big you are as a powerlifter. If you had 1 million followers on Instagram, you want to train in my gym, guess what? Can't train in my gym. Sorry, I'm not the gym for you. Um, 
parents come to me all the time say, hey, can I do some training while so-and-so's in the ADP? Nope, can't do it. It's easy money. It'd be great. No, can't do it because I'm, I'm making my decisions based on the strategic relevance um, and the commercials. And I know, in the, you know, remember how I said short-term upside usually means long-term downside and vice versa. The short-term upside of making money from running adult group training programs, the long-term downside is I'm no longer athlete's authority anymore. Like I'm not just training athletes to help them go from good to great. I'm looking at every opportunity to make every dollar from every market possible. And that's not us. You know, so the long-term consequence would be I'd be losing, I'd be, I'd be selling out the vision, so to speak. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the thing. You, if, if you're listening to this, you want to consider, you want to consider to remove intuition Remove, oh, I think this is the right thing to do and always treat your business decisions as what's the strategic relevance of this decision and what is the commercials of this decision and does it make sense? Yeah. Because you like to expand on every topic, we're going to keep these ones short. So you have to answer them in 30 seconds or less. Yeah, keep me. All right. The two or three best business decisions you made for AA post Lockie joining? Um, mentorship, giving back to the community um, of the SNC coaches. That's the first one. And Lockie, Lockie drove that. I give him full credit for that. Um, and, and realizing that we each had our own roles to play. And the, the more we tried to both do the same thing, the worse the business got. Giving ourselves permission to, to work to our strengths was the best thing we could do. And then two or three of the worst or, or I suppose, learning experiences? I, I, the ones that I've mentioned. Um, taking easy wins. The easy wins actually is probably the biggest learning lesson and caused the most harm to my business is easy wins. Um, because easy wins are long-term losses almost every single time. Um, that would be the biggest one. Second biggest one, the both biggest learning lesson is to, to roll, roll with those failures because you're going to make a lot of them. And even, what, even good strategic decisions don't always work. Um, they just don't. It's good in theory and doesn't work in practice and you just got to keep iterating. Um, so, okay, yeah, let's, let me just summarize that then. Um, not, not iterating fast enough and adapting and being agile fast enough when you realize something's not working. Sticking to your vision again, which basically, yeah. 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 Because you're pretty high energy and I've always known you as being quite high energy. Have you ever experienced burnout over the course of the career with AA? Yeah. Yeah. It's not good either. Um, me and Lockie, me and Lockie realized when COVID hit, um, which was March 2020, that what we were probably doing was unsustainable. So I'll tell you Lockie's schedule. And you tell me another director of a business who, who did this. He ran the 6.30 a.m. sessions, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The 9 a.m. sessions, the midday sessions, the afternoon sessions, the evening sessions, and left at about 8 p.m. at night. Completely unsustainable. And then I was there because he was there. I was there and I was fucking just like working at 30% efficiency, just trying to 
trying to keep the business because he was there. If he was there, I was there. And COVID hit and we we essentially got this chance. You know, COVID was such a blessing in that sense because we got this chance to rebuild the model. We came back in July on a three-day training split, a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And me and Lockie have not changed that since. He's not in on Tuesday or Thursday, nor am I. And that has saved us from what was ultimately going to be, you know, we were burnt out we, and we just tried to persevere through it. But our, our efficiency and productivity was at such a low level. We were, some days we felt like zombies. So yes, do, uh, do suffer from burnout and B, the answer is to actually create a time time schedule for yourself that is sustainable. And we found three days on works best for us. Um, and they're big days, you know, they're 12, 13 hour days on a Monday, but I know Tuesday I stay home. I do a 12, 13 hour day on a Wednesday, but then Thursday I stay home. I do 12, 13 hour day. Well, I actually do a 16 hour day on a Friday, but then I get Saturday and Sunday off. And that's allowed me to, to manage that. You know, on my days off, I train on the, my days at the gym, I don't bother training. You know, it's, it's just how we found it works for us. And is there any, um, I suppose, rabbit holes that you're currently going in either personally or, or professionally? Um, professionally where I'm actually doing some, some video editing stuff because I want to create my own, um, YouTube channel, um, for, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to call it gym freedom and it's going to be, um, weekly or bi-weekly, um, YouTube content on, on, on business concepts, concepts. Um, so I've been looking at that cause I'd like to probably be able to have the control of doing some video editing. Um, initially I've always had this belief that, um, before you outsource outsource a responsibility, understand that, understand how to do something first. So you don't get fucked on. Not, not so you can do it yourself. So you don't get fucked on and cheesed by people who take advantage of, of ignorance because that happens. And we've all had those, you know, those bad mechanic stories. Where you, you know you, it's a fucking loose bolt on your hubcap, and the fucking guy charges you for an engine rebuild. Um, so I do it just so I know what is reasonable, what what's the time investment. I can compare it to what I could produce as a rookie. You know all these things. So you know, that's what I'm doing. Um, doing a few courses like that. Um, that's what I'm doing professionally. Um, and personally, the rabbit hole is family. Rabbit hole is family. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a family man. Like I spend my weekends like working on the backyard or, or building things. And, and that's been good because I've never really done that. And I'm, I've got two left hands. And I don't know how to use a hammer. So it's, that's been a good rabbit hole. Just being in a safe to fail environment and fucking up a bit and continue going and just rebuilding stuff. Makes you feel manly, doesn't it? It does. And there's, to be honest, there's a lack of avenues in order to do that. Like there's a lack of avenues these days to, to actually, you know, just do some manual labor. Um, so I've actually, I've actually really enjoyed it. Did the backyard last weekend, dug holes all weekend, sweated in the sun and it was fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it was actually great to do. And uh, we sort of briefly touched on it, but you're opening, well, AA has a new facility and it's almost open. Yeah. Do you want to just elaborate on that? as well yeah you know how i mentioned before that you know over time we've wanted to add value and add amenities um to the program um this is really showcasing um the idea that 
we will be creating the first professional sporting facility for private private sector in Sydney. I know you guys do it in O2. Um, pretty sure you've got guys have got ice bars and all that stuff, don't you? Already, yeah. But again, it's not it's not all it's in the one building, but it's not all under the one banner, which is where you've right. done it better. Right. Yeah. So you know, you join you join our program. And you have every amenity that you'd expect if you're a professional athlete. You have your sports dietitian. You have your um, video review room. Like we've created theatre room for video review. Um, we've got ice bars, spas, um, massage chairs, everything you can possibly imagine to to treat yourself like a professional athlete. Because the last thing we wanted was athletes who feel like they didn't have the resources they needed to to realise their dream, which was my experience as an athlete. Um, so that's why that's why we're doing what we're doing. So we're going all in. We're going. We're capitalising massively on the facility. It's going to be a huge. It's going to be a huge thing when it launches. And you know now we'll be seeing if the model stands the test of time, which you know I'm excited about because it is a big move. It's cost a lot of money to do it. So now I need to I need to prove that it works. And and you know I'm be crossing fingers that it does. Are you able to smell the roses? Very good. Are you are you good at that? So being able to see what the original AA was, you know, that dingy little thing and then to what this new facility is? No. Is that because you're never going to be satisfied with it or? Yeah, like I'm just not that type of person. You know how you read on Instagram, oh no, I just like to relax and unwind and, you know, be grateful and, you know, I can't do it. There's always just something else. But that's what I want. So I'm, I'm not complaining about that. I, there's always something else. There's always something to do. Um, and that's how I like it. I always just like being full throttle um, and always challenging myself. That's, I really, that's what I enjoy. That's why I fall asleep easy at night because I'm fucking wrecked. <laughs> that's, that's what I want. Um, so yeah, no, nah, I don't. Like I think about, I think about like AA in a dingy little, um, you know, dingy little gym above a smash repairs and be like, yeah, that was it and move on. I don't have, I, I, I lose contact with that emotional side of, of what it used to be. And I don't have that emotive response really of, of my past, but that's also been helpful because I, I've gone through some interesting shit in my life and not having emotional attachments to my past meant, has meant I can move on. Like I don't have those, um, barriers. I have those, yeah, yeah. I don't have those barriers of you know, still having an emotional attachment to things. Um, and that's probably why I can't smell the roses because I, I have lost my sense of smell in that sense. You had COVID. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if, if anyone is still still listening at this point in time and they've come this far, they probably deserve something, you know, good, i.e. your your mentorship or, or some of the resources that you guys have to offer. Um, where can they, if they are new and haven't heard of you guys, which I doubt, but where would they be able to find some of that stuff or get more yeah. info on the mentorship. There's heaps of resources for free. That is, is always what I would suggest you start on. And every time someone inquires, I first make sure that they've, they've exhausted those resources and you're in the mentorship because you did the fitness MBA. And that's how I kind of like, I want someone to, to lean into that. And if they still want to do it by the end of, you know, exhausting all our free resources, then, then go ahead and do it. Um, so go to, go to our webpage, athletesauthority.com.au, go to resources, Go to coaches. I think there's coaches and blog, and then from coaches you get redirected to um, our mentorship website, which is called Authority to Coach, and everything free's on there. There's heaps of free stuff. 
Um, and I would, I would take advantage of that before you worry about mentorship. But if you find you, you do that, um, or if you want to fast track and skip it and your, your business is, has hit a plateau, um, then, you know, I can potentially help. I've seen you do incredible things. Um, you're already in a good spot when we first met, but, you know, we're able to work on some systems and, and efficiencies. And, you know, I think that's a big thing for you is the efficiencies have improved and have allowed you to invest time into talking perspectives and the, and the workshops that you've done and, you know, expanding to youth development, all those things have been great. So if, if you're at that stage where you feel like you're in a brick wall and, and need someone to hike you up over it, then, you know, I can probably help with that. Yeah, that's no, awesome. And I remember I was talking to Roger last week after we finished like the recording and I was saying it's quite ironic because I remember when Roger first liked one of my, one of my posts, I was like, Oh, it's, you know, it's Roger. And then same deal when you guys first liked or followed or something, I was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. But now it's good to be in the same conversation as some of you guys as well. That's why I asked in back, can you smell the roses? Because I was looking yeah. back the other day, I flicked right through all the way down because someone asked, how long have I been posting stuff for now? And it was like five and five and a half years or something, you know? So yeah. you go through that period where three people would like your stuff, you know, yeah. two people would view it. And now it's obviously a little bit more than that, but it's that growth period of, of time and seeing that evolution has been quite interesting. And, and my missus and I were talking about the other night. It's, it's quite, it's a sense of achievement in a small way, but it's only a small part of the end end game. Yeah. Well, what is the end game? That's like maybe a good thing to think about. Like in business, there isn't really an end game. No. It keeps going. It's like, like, it's like a game of football that doesn't stop and it just keeps on going. And that, like the goal of business is to keep going. You have to just keep going. And that's what I love about it, you know. Um, it is really that, that survival of the fittest, the person who can just keep running and trot along and, and fall forward are the businesses that survive. Um, and, and I love that. Just a reminder again of our workshop this weekend with Christian Woodford, Sandor Earl, Tog Carney and Jared Mullen, the physical preparation workshop. Um, if you've gotten this far, I do have a little treat for you. If you're still um and and you're still thinking about getting a ticket, if you go to www.woodfordsnc.com.au, go to the shop uh, and find the link to the ticket, use the code word PERFORMANCE, all capitals, that's again, performance for 30% off.